we are back from Change to Change. I am DJ Bruja, a.k.a. Bruce Riley, Deputy Director at Voters Organized Educate and Vote. And today, extending our amazing series with uh, state legislators and talking about, you know, the, the, the power structure and the system and, and how we create change. We've got none other than my own representative, Mr. Royce Duplessis. How you doing, Royce? I'm doing good. How are you, Bruce? All right, cool. Well, glad to have you here in the, in the studio. Uh, today, we are operating out of the vote building with nice sunny effects. It's beautiful. Beautiful uh, new building. Glad to be here. And, you know, check out Miss Cassandra's plants. They're all doing really well. She yes. is representing for the green thumbs of us all. I mean... You should see my courtyard, though. But <laughs> so, Royce, you know, uh, you know, some folks I think know you really well. You're definitely always out in the community. You're, you you crisscross, you know, beyond the legislative session. You're very much, uh, you know, a community member and leader. Uh, but give people a little bit about your background and 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 how you got into this space and and, and what what makes you want to like be working on our topics, our issue areas. Sure. Well, I am a native New Orleanian, Bruce, uh, born and raised here. My mom worked for the Postal Service her whole career. My dad worked for the Orleans Parish School System. He was a a teacher. He worked with children with special needs as an adaptive physical education teacher. Uh, A lot of people think or assume that I I grew up in a political family when it was actually quite the opposite. My family, they were hardworking parents and were really all about raising me and my three brothers. We were really involved in recreation with New Orleans Recreation Department. That's where we spent most of our time growing up. And just appreciating the value of hard work, but also appreciating uh, the, the, I guess you would say, the value of working to ensure others also have it, have some shot as mm-hmm. well, recognizing your own blessings. So somewhere along the way, Bruce, I don't quite know when it triggered for me, but I can tell you I never grew up seeing myself in politics or an elected <laughs> office. I always thought that I'd probably take the business route. I went to school right up the street at Xavier mm-hmm. uh, for college. I actually lived right around the corner in college, right off the corner of, Broad, um, of uh, Walmsley in South right. Salcedo. Uh, so this used to be my uh, old, old stomping grounds. But during that time, and I referenced that during that time, I never really saw myself where I am today. But along the journey, I started interacting with folks and had some professional opportunities that exposed me to public service and what it meant. I interned for a state legislator one semester in college. And then in 2006, right after Hurricane Katrina, a friend of mine was law partners with a guy who was running for city council. Mm -hmm. And I was planning to go to law school that next fall at either Tulane or Loyola. He asked me to volunteer on his campaign. Mm -hmm. And I was like, sure, I got some time. You know, let's go see what this is about. Guy ends up winning. And then asked me to be his chief of staff. So I deferred law school a year. And I would say that was probably the experience that opened my eyes up to the world of public policy in Mm -hmm. a real way, to the world of politics in a real way. And and also showed me the importance of having good people in these offices, despite how challenging it is and despite the level of apathy Mm -hmm. that many in the community have, rightfully so. Yeah. So that was sort of my journey in a general sense. Uh, And I can talk more about why I feel the need to work on issues that organizations Mm -hmm. like Vote Champions. I'm certainly happy to talk about that. But just to kind of sum it all up, you know, as a black man from New Orleans who 
my life could have gone a lot of different directions mm-hmm. had I not had certain certain key pieces in my life, you know, uh, stable income, mm-hmm. a stable roof over my head, you know, stable education, yeah. all of these basic aspects that we all want for our families, that if those things were not in my life, there's no telling where I would be. And the statistics show that if those things were not stable in my life, there's a high likelihood of yeah. knowing where I would be. Yeah. So those things became pretty clear to me. And, and knowing that all of this is shaped by policy. Mm-hmm. Poverty is not an accident. Uh, a, a lot of the never negative consequences and outcomes that we see in society are not by accident. Most of it is, um, even if it's not intentional, these could be uh, unintentional consequences or just simple, simple byproducts that we accept as a society based on intentional policy choices. Mm-hmm. So that's why I really like the, the, the title of this show, Change to Change, because you have to always be able to tie it. You have, you have to be able to tie the history of where we are today, where we're trying to go to where we've come from. Yeah. You know, and, and one of the things that, that I recognize that I think anybody who did time would know is, you know, obviously there's a lot of dads, a lot of moms that are incarcerated. There ain't a single one of them out in there that are saying, oh, I hope my kid carjack somebody you know they're, they're like stay in school you know get your grades right like how's your mom doing or you sure. know and they're, they're hopeful for stable housing just like you're talking about and income and things and they know it's hard and sometimes they're just crossing their fingers and you know and dealing with their own you know at times guilt of dealing like you know feeling like they failed uh, but hoping that the next generation doesn't fail behind them yeah right? look I think we live in a society where unfortunately there, there's a class that inherently blames people for their circumstances. Mm-hmm. And yes, choices do lead to certain outcomes and conditions. But to your point, Bruce, that parent, that mother, that father who might be incarcerated or who might be trying to get their kid into a better school, they all want better for their children. They just might not know how or they may not have the access. Maybe no one showed them. Mm-hmm. So we but we blame them and we say, well, you, they should do better. Um, well, I think there's a shared responsibility there, and we all have to collectively embrace that. So that's why I went into public service. Yeah, well, that's that's great, you know. And I, and I think, you know, contrast your your position, your, you know, where you're coming from. Um, you know, I, I recently got forwarded uh, something that your co- one of your colleagues put out, uh, uh, Jay Morris, and you know, he's taking uh, sort of this. Rising crime uh, needs to be stomped down kind of approach. And, you know, I keep hearing, obviously, this this sort of like media kind of talking point thing. And so much of their uh, of their rationale to me misses the mark. And I really hope to see them have to counter with like public dialogue, because if you believe that the 16, 17, 19 year olds are the problem, right? Now, I won't say they're the problem, but clearly a lot of crime is committed, you know, by 16, 17, you know, that age bracket. And as we know, we're just talking about like, that's when people are really struggling the hardest to try to find their way. But the idea that leaving people in prison until they're a senior citizen 
it does nothing for the next 16, 17, 19-year-old. So you're literally not preventing any crime any more than an ambulance prevents a car wreck. Right. Now, an ambulance may need to come by, right. but we think about what prevents car wrecks, and it's things like traffic lights. Or you know, Imagine if you're like, I think that if we have a, uh, these two different lanes in the road, like we're going to have more safe, and someone's looking at it, I'm like, no, just you know, assassinate anyone who gets in a car wreck, you know, but you didn't solve the problem. No. So you're not helping someone who actually might be the victim of the next crime. That's right. You're literally like throwing that potential victim under the bus and saying, don't worry, after you're, you know, mugged or whatever, right. we're going to get the guy. And it's right. like, well, that doesn't help me any. I want That's you right. to maybe give the guy another on-ramp. That's right. Rather than like smack him over the head after I'm mugged. That's right. So I'm going to be using that metaphor just so you know. <laughs> uh, I, I, plan, I, might, I might attribute it to you if I remember. But no, <laughs> it's fine if you don't. But no, I, it's actually a great metaphor. And I just want to... Um, Thank you for highlighting that. So, you know, what we're experiencing right now, look, I wasn't I wasn't around uh, in this capacity, obviously, in the 90s when three strikes was passed. Mm-hmm. And we saw all of that movement at the federal level that re- that led to such a, 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 a greater increase in terms of our incarceration. The U.S. was already incarcerating. We were already, you know, filling up prisons, finding new ways to be tough on crime. But to see it play out in 2022, after we've seen such a massive movement around bipartisan support for being smarter on crime, Mm -hmm. it's it's really mind-blowing and shocking that many of us who we would expect, people like Jay Morris, who, you know, I I get it given his, but now we're seeing it from many of our own peers. They're drinking that Kool-Aid that have been hanging around. Who who we look to and look at to say, no, we're not going to take that bait Mm -hmm. and take the take the knee-jerk reaction mm-hmm. of feeling the pressure that, oh, we have to do something. Oh, we can go past something and then go to our neighborhood associations and then go on the press and say, when they ask us, well, what are you doing about the crime? What are you doing about the carjacking? Right. We can say, well, we passed this law to expand uh, the type of crimes, whether it be RICO laws or to, in, or to in, in, enhance the penalties. Mm-hmm. We can do that if we just want to get some of the pressure off of ourselves. Mm -hmm. But we're going to be doing the same thing five years from now, 10 years from now. We'll have more people in jail Mm -hmm. and fewer problems solved because the type of long term commitment and investments uh, don't seem to bode well with four year election cycles, two year election cycles, six year election cycles. Well, we need something immediate to point to to say this is what we did. And to your point, Bruce. You send that person away for 30 years, 40 years, 50 years. We're stopping that next 15, 16, 17, 18-year-old from uh, entering right behind. Nothing. Nothing. It's like the, that, that, that ambulance to a car wreck uh, metaphor that I think was just, it was perfect, you know, versus streetlights, better painted mm-hmm. roads, uh, more signage, mm-hmm. more lighting, those sorts of things. And, and that just has never been the politically popular conversation to have. Mm-hmm. So I find myself in a very difficult spot right now mm-hmm. because I have people who I consider allies who are pushing some of this stuff. And I think this is time where we have to have the really difficult conversations because mm-hmm. we're going right back into that same uh, natural human tendency yeah. to come up with a solution for a very complex problem. And our community... I understand does not want to hear that some of these problems are going to take a long time to solve. Mm-hmm. You know, investing in education, investing in housing, investing in uh, giving people a sense of dignity and self-worth where they want to participate in society that you can't you can't fix that by the end of the summer. Yeah, that's not, you know, I mean, that's what people are looking for. Yeah. 
You know, people want to be able to go on vacation at the end of the summer and and come back and say, all right, New Orleans leaders, y'all fixed crime, didn't Mm -hmm. y'all? Yeah. Well, you know, it's crazy because... You know, and, and I'm going to bring in my man Norris Henderson, who just joined us. The legend. What's up, Norris? Uh, What's up, man? You moved the studio yeah, over. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, we got the studio shifting around. You know, we, we're trying to stay out of people's way. You know, Power Coalition gave us an eviction notice. Uh, you know, Mandy Landry's working on a bill about that. But anyway, so uh, you know, as, as Norris always says, you know, you, you're you're fond of the like we aren't term limited. You know, and Royce, you know, definitely respect. Like I was saying earlier, I mean, you're a community member, right? You're not in it for the four years or the eight years, right? We, we and you're a young guy looking good, seem healthy. You got other you got other things to do after you get kicked out of the legislature. Yeah. Um, but you know, uh, another thing to to point out for these you know these quick fix kind of you know to every carpenter it's a nail kind of people right. Um, they are investing in housing, but it's prison housing. Mm. They are investing in health care, but it's geriatric care for folks. Mm-hmm. And, and that brings us to, to one of your bills that, that we prioritized that came out of a study uh, task force that you did last year around medical parole. Um, but Norris, you know, give us a sense. You know, I'm looking at some stats or something like about 12 percent of the of the of the population that's incarcerated is over 60. You know, never mind like over 40 or 50, like it's literally over 60 years old. Um, and as we know, like one of the problems with the medical release is that almost nobody can be eligible because you got to be permanently disabled. And who's really going to say permanent, right? Oh, you right. could have a magical surgery and right. be out of that wheelchair in three years, right? right? And then also the prison doctor is the only one who can recommend you. But Norris, give us a sense of why this medical release piece, which is, is one of Royce's bills, uh, actually it's HB fact, 728 this is, this, this, this is the perfect segue because one of my best friends right now is in UMC, and he had two back-to-back strokes, been locked up 40 years. And the signal to me that he was in real trouble is when the nurse asked me, well, the doctor asked me, do you know his next of kin? Mm. So I forwarded the daughter's information, and the next thing was they got approval for her to visit him. That's unheard of. Mm. You don't get a hospital visit unless you're there for 10 days. Wow. And so when that was approved, I was like, he must be in really bad shape. Then the next text I got from her was saying that, and this is something that's rare, is that they're going to push to try to get him a medical release. Wow. The challenge with that is because he's charged with first-degree murder, mm-hmm. he don't fall into that criteria. Mm-hmm. Right. And so this would make it a lot easier for folks like that to actually be considered. Right. He's paralyzed um, completely on his right side, meaning he won't be able to do anything for himself. Uh, she literally said that uh, he can't even feed himself. Mm. So if you can't feed yourself in a prison right. environment, there's no need for you to be there. Right. She can't really get him the therapy that he needs while he's here primarily because he's incarcerated. Mm-hmm. And so it's a different, I guess, a different criteria for folks uh, having to access those kind of services while they're handcuffed and shackled mm-hmm. to a bed. Mm-hmm. But no, I think this is the, that's been one of the biggest challenges. One of the things that I kind of witnessed all the time was the fact that I was a hospice volunteer. Mm-hmm. And I used to see folks who, on their last leg, man, this is what hospice was about. And people would rather let them die there mm-hmm. as opposed to let them go home. 
You know, right. just let them go home. They, they, their prognosis is terminal, mm-hmm. and uh, we would rather spend that. That's right. That extra amount of money just to keep them there, just to say, uh, you know, we 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 follow the rule. And right. even with the secretary having the authority to make these decisions, you know, he rallies ever does it because he rely on the administration. It starts right. at the institutional level. And if you can't get it past the hospital administrator, well, right off the top, you're done. But if you get it past that, get it to the warden, and if the warden have feels some kind of way, you're done. Mm-hmm. Or if you get it past them two and you get to the secretary, if the person's still living, it might happen. But so much bureaucracy in this whole process. This will help kind of like clear that up that if you get this diagnosis or this prognosis from the hospital, you know, it's kind of funny. Even coaches don't intervene when doctors say something. They say, we defer to medical opinion. Mm-hmm. And so when that medical opinion surfaces, that should be it. Mm-hmm. You know, they bring these guys in front of these pardon and parole boards, and the first thing the board member asks is like, Doc, what is your diagnosis? And the doctor says, well, I give him maybe six months. And in that moment, everything changes. People realize that your word is law. That's it. And so mm-hmm. we need this codified in a way that it don't exclude. Because the people who are dying, who have been in prison for a very long time, is going to be the people who have those charges mm-hmm. that right. have offended somebody right. somewhere along the way. That's right. If, if the guy come to jail for death and he's dying, well, he was ill before he showed up. Right. These other guys were ill because of the lack of treatment throughout the process while they had been there, you know? And so I, mm-hmm. I think, man, it's, you know, um, admirable of you to kind of like take this on and uh, kind of like caught the tail end of the last conversation about how some people want to show up and some people just want, don't want to take on tough things. Yeah. You know, some people want the warm and fuzzy kind of stuff to feel good stuff that do more harm than good, yeah. you know? Yeah, I, well, I, I just to that point, Norris, and, you know, I appreciate just all of your insight with, with all of these these pieces. And the 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 thing that, that caught my attention many, many years ago when I began having some of these conversations and before you came, Norris, I was giving Bruce somewhat of my background and what brought me to this, and that was my first job with James Carter. That's right, when you and I right. first met. That was back in 2006. But... Man, have been that long ago. Yeah, yeah. Um, but the the term criminal menopause that you that I first heard from you mm-hmm. that you hit a certain age, the likelihood of you offending again mm-hmm. pretty much goes down to zero. Yeah. But what we choose as a society oftentimes is to say, well, we know this proud person is probably not going to reoffend, and we also spending all of these hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars, to house and, and treat this person. But we're going to keep them there just out of pure anger. Mm-hmm. And until as a society we can deal with that and have those sorts of uh, uh, conversations and, and ability to deal with policies on that level, we're going to keep ending up in this space. And that's why none of this stuff made its way into justice reinvestment, mm-hmm. right? They took all of the hard all stuff the off. Stuff. The, off yeah. they, they, they did the easy stuff, mm-hmm. but took the hard stuff out. So... Um, it, it's certainly, y'all, look, y'all know better than anybody. Mm-hmm. It's, it's not easy having these conversations at the Capitol. Uh, but, you know, we're going to continue to do them. But I'm grateful because people like Chico and, and Will and Bruce and y'all and, and Norris, obviously, 
led the task force that can put credible data, working with the doctors, working with the experts, and we can make a credible data-driven argument. Yeah. So y'all doing the heavy lifting, and I'm just there to almost help elevate the, the voice. Well, and shout out to, to Dr. Anjali Naogi, uh, yeah. you know, among many, including you know, Dr. Marsha Glass, you know, also happened to be constituents of yours, yeah. friends, neighbors. Um, and you know, Anjali has so much experience working with our folks, both at UMC, but then also with the Fit Clinic, as she's the director of, and uh, and working with people, you know, this this classically older, incarcerated or coming out of incarceration group. And so she's really been able to put a lot of expertise into like, what are these different conditions and what's the, the mechanism of getting treatment? And so, you know, we're grateful for that expertise. And, you know, to that point of trying to like surface what people need to know, uh, you know, this Wednesday um, on the 6th, we're doing a teach-in here uh, that's going to be live in the building, but also live streamed, really trying to educate the medical community more than anything, but of course, everybody. But, you know, those of us who have, um, you know, been asked to sort of present on incarcerated health care at like med schools and such, um, you know, it's amazing how that's like this this unknown dark hole mm -hmm. and it's like, yo, this is your profession, right? Y'all need to be looking in at how people are treated, you know, minutes or hours away from where you currently sit behind your back or not be treated. That's right. And I think that, you know, whether it be legislation or otherwise, the opportunity to have these conversations in public and hopefully uh, the event that, that we're doing up in Baton Rouge on the fifth, uh, which is designed to create that proximity between a lot of the legislators uh, and I believe some folks maybe from the DAs or Sheriff's Association might be showing up. And for those of us who've like done this time, for them to be able to kind of experience who we are. That's right. And who we are on the other side of it. And, and hopefully it might, you know, change their frame of reference. Uh, you know, and for me, you know, I got out of 32. I had a chance to, to build something. You know, and I come down here and I and I see that that is actually such a rare thing. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if one were to just objectively look back and say, wow, is it like who benefits for letting somebody out at, say, 32 and having an opportunity to, like, you know, start a family, build a career, get an education, contribute to the community or let them out at, say, 62 mm -hmm. and have missed those chances more than likely, you know, right. in some ways, I don't not to dismiss the awesomeness of some of our elders. Um, but literally for a lot of people kind of force them to be a ward of the state, but maybe mm -hmm. in a different context, maybe sure. cheaper, maybe they're giving back or whatever. Right. But even still, you literally just cut off that chance for self-sustainability. Like who benefits? Sure. You know? Sure. Yeah. I mean that, and that is the, the challenge with all of this. We, we don't really see the harm that's created there because mm -hmm. that's a, that's a child or a grandchild that has to go that much further right. without having that person in their life. Uh, that's more expenses that that family has to spend calling or keeping in touch or going travel to see there's collateral consequences to that. It's much harder to see, but we, we don't want to take the time to do that measurement and just be honest about it. Cause um, you know, we have painted, uh, we've fallen into this way of thinking that compassion is weak mm. or that, um, you know, forgiveness uh, or understanding is some sign of, um, you know, that it's, it's, I think this, we got our values twisted a little bit in, around, in, in, in this yeah. time. Yeah. Right. And sometimes it's just like, you know, folks take those stances because it hasn't showed up at their front door. 
Mm-hmm. Right. And then when they show up at their front door, they're they calling realize. Norris. <laughs> All of a oh, sudden, yeah. it's like, oh, Norris. Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, it's, 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 it's true. I mean, it's, it's so true. It's so true. There is a, it's so true. There's a case. I, I'm not going to get into any details, but let's just say uh, it involves someone who has never been involved and come from affluence, the whole nine, and I mean, just complete opposite side of uh, the, the spectrum and ends up in a scenario. And I mean, you, you know, you would think, I mean, it's just a complete reversal, yeah. right? So I'll leave it at that without leaving yeah. any, uh, yeah. I've, I've, I've experienced it firsthand, yeah. I've seen it. But Norris, how do you handle, because uh, I, I know I've, had, I've been in this situation, probably a, a minuscule, plenty, but minuscule compared to yourself, mm-hmm. but someone comes at you and let's say they're coming from sort of a tough on crime background, whether they're public about it or not, right? But you kind of, as, as Royce alluding to, you know, someone from a different part of the spectrum, and all of a sudden they've got a need, right? Like, mm-hmm. oh, vote, Norris, whatever, Bruce, you know, you got to help my family out or something or help me out. Mm-hmm. How do you, as a, as a wise elder, I'll put it that way, wiser than myself and more loving and graceful than myself, how do you approach that conversation? Well, really, it I just kind of depends on, really, because I, I almost can't, can't give you a detailed situation. One, I remember a person who was kind of like this really dogmatic about, you know, former incarcerated people, and they got caught up. And I remember being in a restaurant with some folks during campaign season. It was like two days before they was getting ready to go off to prison. And I just reminded them, when you get there, just let somebody know you know me. Mm. And in that moment, he he really appreciated that because when he got to the other end and folks realized we were from New Orleans, and one of the first questions to him was, do you know this guy? And so I became the barometer for him in that environment that, okay, he must be all right. This guy know him. And so a lot of times I just laugh to myself when they take those positions. And then when they go full circle, you, you get coming right back. And I'd be like, man, if you only would have put these things. And the, the biggest story I tell about that is uh, Webster Hubble. This guy used to be on the Supreme Court of Arkansas when Bill Clinton was the governor. When Bill Clinton goes to D.C., Bill Clinton pulls him into the Justice Department. By that time, Whitewater catch up with him. He winds up going to prison. But before he went, he was the guy putting all the policies together for the Bureau of Prison. And then he sat down one day and wrote Bill a letter. Dear Bill, in theory, these policies work. In practice, they don't. Well, you're the one created all of them. That's right. You know, and so sometimes that People don't get that wake-up call until it's kind of like slap them in the face. Sometimes it's too late, but sometimes it gives them that, that grace and it humbles them in a way that, you know, they can recognize it. Then, you know, sometimes I could easily say, I told you so, but, you know, you get no joy out of it. I don't get no, no joy out of seeing nobody yeah, suffer, especially right. that kind of misery. Yeah, right. I, I wouldn't even wish my waste enemy go to jail. You know, something else could happen. Don't go to jail because everybody don't survive those environments, you know? Not just kind of like not physically survive them, but they can survive physically, but mentally, they be traumatized for the rest of their life. You know, and this thing I tell people all the time, your 12 years is different from the next guy's 12 years. Depends yeah. on how he done it, or your 30 or his 40. Right. And folks don't factor those things in. But the other thing is, is that 
the collateral damage. It's those folks that we leave behind. You know, those folks whose families kind of like, if you're the only brave one, it's not like you disrupted everything in everybody's life. So no, we, you know, me particular, you know, I just kind of like, you know, just, just always encourage folks, man, that, man, tomorrow it could be you. Just always think about these decisions you're making that they may impact somebody else's life. I, I remember a legislature years ago, man, the reason it's so hard for folks to get out, get pardons, was because one woman was so upset about the person who offended their family that she asked the legislature to change the law to make it difficult for guys to go in front of the pardon board. Hmm. You used to go to the pardon board every other year. This guy takes it up because at this time you can get on the silver box and, you know, lock him up, throw away the key. He said, anybody serving life shouldn't be eligible for uh, a pardon hearing until they do 15 years. And if they don't get a recommendation, got to wait seven more. And if you don't get one after that, then five more, then three. And I was like, man, if my brother became governor, I could never get out because mm-hmm. he'd be one and right. done. Right. 25 years came where Foster, Jindal, and Jerome, um, Buddy Jerome, Buddy Jerome. So we went 25 years, man, with those three guys. And it became difficult. That's why we got this aging population now, because everybody was fearful that if I file for a pardon and I get denied, I'm resigning myself to stay in prison another seven years. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to take away my own hope. And so I said that to kind of like just point to how these things, one person can make a decision that not only impacts the person that's targeted, but everything and everybody around. You want to punish one person. That's right. But in the process, you punish thousands That's of right. people. That's right. And so sometimes I don't think people understand the impact of, you know, we call it impact litigation, but impact legislation too, that the impact that this stuff can have on people. But no, I don't, I don't, I don't you know, see it no kind of way. I might kind of like say something to myself that now you get it, you know. Speaking, you just gave me an idea, Norris. I think we should um, maybe look at doing some type of um, resolution, like urging or requesting uh, various agencies from the Department of Corrections. Maybe not corrections, but we can certainly get the Department of Health, maybe education, housing corporation to come together and study the impact yes. of some of these sentences and some of these penalties and making a report. And we, we come up with a report that's data-driven, that literally gets into measuring how uh, a 25-year sentence or life without parole sentence impacts the, the, the family and the, and the surrounding community. And I, I was in a conversation with uh, somebody the other day and was talking about the crime situation. And the thing came up about the, the kids in the car right. and the full kids, all school-age kids. Mm-hmm. And I was like, did anybody ever question, one, why he wasn't in school? Mm-hmm. Did anybody check to find out what's their truancy record at school? Because if they have a truancy record at school, that tells me something is going wrong at home. So we can kind of like solve these problems or resolve them if we dig deep enough. But nobody thinks that here's four school-age kids out of school. For what reason? How many days have they missed from school? And if they've been missing, well, why haven't y'all not reported that? You know, so a lot of people are kind of like complicit in a lot of this stuff. But when it hits the fan, 
they want to point out one single entity. And you know, and I'll say this, because I got to run to jump on the car right quick. Yeah. Everybody want to point their finger at the police. And earnestly, I believe if the police could actually stop something, they would. Because, you know, being, being real, the first time you hear gunshots, most people go in the other directions. Police go in the direction the gunshots coming from. Like the firemen. Fire, everybody going left, firemen going straight to the fire. So to their credit, they can't stop none of this. They can try to help solve it or resolve it, but they can't stop it. So stop pointing the finger saying, oh, the police should have been here. What he was going to do? He didn't know what was going to happen. You know? So I think one of the things, if we kind of like start having these conversations about what is driving this stuff, you know? I, I think it was me and Bruce talking yesterday about, have y'all ever talked to any of these teenagers who yeah. call <laughs> Royce, you might ask <laughs> someone, you know, when you're yeah. up there and, and since home yeah. break, be like, yeah. I wanna, I'm curious, how many people have done a carjacking have you spoken with? Because if you haven't spoken to like 20, 25, you probably don't know anything about carjackers. That's right. right. That's right. You know, Nor- Norris, how many people have you spoken with in depth who've killed somebody? Oh, man, thousands. I've yeah. spoken to hundreds, right? Yeah. And so the reality is we know a little bit about like the patterns and behaviors and the conditions and the context that happens. That's right. I personally know, you know, a few dozen people who've done something either carjacking or, or similar to it, right? Right. And on the in-depth of it, right, of like what was going on at that moment, what was, whether you're 15 or 25, right? And so we have these people that are making these assumptions, leaping to conclusions. That's right. And all right, Norris. She's going to pop in and pop out of my, my, my radio show. It really isn't my radio show, is it? I got no control. But, <laughs> but, uh, but I think that's the type of questioning we have to like, put out there to our community, whether you're a police chief, a mayor, a legislator, uh, an expert on you know, these criminologists that look at numbers and stuff. You got to look behind the numbers. Like they say Brian Stevenson says you got to be proximate. Mm-hmm. You got you to get up on it. And I think that's so true. You know, there should probably be some requirement that DAs, um, defenders, whomever, people that are, quote unquote, working on these issues, that they that there be some sort of uh, requirement that they undergo to understand the population of people that they're supposedly working on, myself included. Right. People um, in my position so that we really understand these things and not based them purely off of assumption and that it happens every day. So, so I try to give myself some space and try to give myself some grace to also be convinced because I could be wrong on issues. You know, I could be wrong, but to be completely just absolute in my views, mm-hmm. I, I, don't, I don't have the luxury of doing that. I mean, on some things I feel very strongly about, so it's going to take harder to convince me otherwise, but I still have to try to give myself some room to be convinced that I could be wrong. Yeah. Well, and, you know, the, one of the crazy things, too, like the folks that would be detractors of, of us here at Vote and people like us around the, around the community um, who think that we just want everyone to go and all this and that. It's like, no, we actually know the difference between the dude who's got like a real violent streak issue mm-hmm. and the dude who had a situation. Right. Right. I'm convinced that 99% of people who haven't been in our shoes don't know the difference, right? And on paper, they don't know the difference between me and, and that other guy, right? And there's people out there, I'm sure, who are still waiting for me to, like, do what's really in my heart, right? And it's like, man, it's been so long. You think it's in my heart? Like, geez. So I, I think that, you know, that nuance, and it kind of gets me to a question I, I was, I've been wanting to ask you was, like, you know, as someone who does work with folks in the community, you know, what advice would you give to somebody? And I met you uh, before you ran for office. What advice would you give to somebody 
who like wants to be like really actually representative of the community and then you know maybe how they would interact with groups and individuals because there's obviously so many competing views I mean how do you how do you kind of manage that in in your in your life as a representative it's an excellent question Bruce so I kind of shared with you my journey and I think that we do live in a time now where because of whether it's technology or just the advancement of society where there's so many platforms and so many avenues for everyone to to elevate themselves in a way where they can say, okay, this is my space. This is what I work on. That, you know, it, it gives people, to kind of go back to my last point, the ability to just say, all right, this is my position. We don't deal with those other folks. We don't even, there ain't no compromising. Mm-hmm. And it, it creates more division, in my opinion. So you have... You know, the crime fighters of the world, you know, like these are the people that are all about. And then you have the people who are approaching this from a different standpoint around reform and just different different methodologies. And I'm using this just as an example, but it it exists in the same world of education, uh, other spaces, you know, just how we go about urban planning. Everybody has these different schools of thought for myself. I think it's important before stepping out there and telling the world, hey, I want to, I want to lead in some way that you, that you, that you demonstrate in a real way an ability to, to follow mm-hmm. and, and, and to, to, to listen and to learn. But also, if, if you are afforded the opportunity to lead, then never lose that ability to say, I'm just here to listen and to, to, to follow, mm-hmm. right? And, and to kind of work with differing views and and, and competing views and at times try to bring competing views together to see if we can come up with a solution. So, like I said, I think it's become increasingly challenging in this day and age. Again, you go to education, it's like either you're pro-charter or you're anti-charter. And it's almost like you have to pick a side. Well, you know, I think the side we should all be picking is just what's right. Yeah, what helps the kids learn. Yeah, what's what's gonna be about these children? So for me, I, like I said, I, I ended up stumbling into politics, but I, I almost had to surrender in terms of uh, acknowledging that I have a, a heart for service. So if you have a heart for service and you want to be involved, you're either going to be working on the advocacy side or the policy side or, you know, the, 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 the electoral side of it. There's so many different ways you can be involved. But a harder service is a harder service. So to me, it doesn't matter whether you're the actual one that's on the ballot or, the, or if you're helping people get on the ballot. We need everybody at the table. And you pointed this out at the beginning. Look, I, I came into this knowing that I have a shelf life. I, you know, my family is the most important thing to me. But I can't tell you that, you know, I don't know where I'm going to be three, four, five, ten years from now. I don't know. But right now, you know, I'm in it. But I think the main thing for anybody who might be looking to try to, move in these spaces and, and, and possibly one day be in that position would be just to um, be one who can who can listen and and who can can understand that uh, we have a lot of competing interests involved. Um, but I think being able to follow first to me shows that, that that's a trait of someone who can eventually be in a position to also be able to lead because mm-hmm. it, it's not really all about me. I'm just kind of here to carry out the wishes of what I think my community wants to see. Yeah, I definitely have seen some folks, you know, um, 
I was going to say for better or for worse, but usually for worse who, you know, who, who want to be leaders and jump out and have never really been part of a group, you know, and they don't really understand the team dynamics and, 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 you know, leading from the back or empowering others and all that stuff. And and it's important to have, have a base. Like Mm -hmm. you got to have some type of base of support for whatever you do. So, you know, that, that comes with establishing a level of credibility amongst people and showing a track record of consistency in your work. Like I didn't, and this is not to talk about myself in any way, but, but you know, when I did run in 2019, no, I ran in 2018. Again, I, I had been working since 2006 on this stuff. So it wasn't like I just woke up one day and was like, I want to run for office. Right. Like it's never been, for me, it was, I ran from it more than anything. <laughs> I mean, no, seriously. <laughs> I, I, and we I, finally captured yeah, Royce yeah, I, was like, I was like, man, cause you know, I, I knew, I knew what a sacrifice it would be. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but it was a journey for me. Uh, everybody's different. I don't think you have to work in, I don't think you need to work in public service before running for it. I think we need people from all different viewpoints, but uh, having some consistent track record of, of work, I think helps. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I, I, you know, in terms of like being integrated with the community, um, you know, I see that you got 19 bills and a commendation of, of Miss Isabella McFarland Southall yeah. for turning 90. Yeah. <laughs> Bless your heart, Miss Isabella. Um, but you know, so you got 19 bills and, I mean, we know about the couple that we're working with on around parole, and we also know kind of the 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 sausage making right. and the and the pushbacks and the you know and all the stuff that that turns you know bills into imperfect instruments. But we kind of try to move forward. But so, like, what's what? You know, I'm sure there's a lot of various processes that you deal with with other groups and individuals. I mean, to get 19 bills, you've probably got a lot of people coming at you saying, you know, put this bill in, put this bill in. Mm. I mean, how do you kind of juggle that process? Yeah, it's a it's it's an ongoing process. So we're in the the midst of the session right now, and I have a few more that I'm gonna drop before uh, next Tuesday. Yeah, I'm a problem. He's, yeah, like, he's like a hip hop artist. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. I'm working in the studio. Yeah, working <laughs> on my next hit. No, but um, but there there are a couple that I'll that I'll try to perfect, or they're they're gonna be very imperfect when you see them. So it it, it comes from all different angles. Some of them are just ideas that I have personally that I've been working on. Or it could be, you know, like House Bill 728, the medical release, mm-hmm. that was straight up me being asked if I would do a resolution. Mm-hmm. Uh, we put the task force together, and now we have the bill after uh, we fi- we worked on, well, I shouldn't say we, but those who, who asked me to file it. So that that's how that w- went. But it, it does require saying no to some stuff, Bruce. Yeah. Honestly, I've gotten to that point where you got to be able to say, look, I, I, I like this issue care about this issue, mm-hmm. but I can't be the one to carry this issue this time around. Mm. So it's a balance of, of, of my heart with also just my, my head and just like, all right, I got I to gotta find a balance between the two. And sometimes your gut will just say, maybe pass on this one. You yeah. know, maybe pass on this one. You know, I got to because I'm trying to I'm swinging big on a couple of things this year. And if I go out and try to swing big on everything and strike out on everything, that's I'm then I'm not serving any any interest. Yeah. And, you know, and for all, all our comrades out there, you know, we try to spread the bills around a bit because we know how much how much on the one hand, how much weight it can be to carry some of the issues we're working on. But also it's a way of getting more a base of legislators. You kind of have a team, a group that's working that's right. on your issues. You that's know? very key. And I think from a strategic standpoint, you all get that, that it, I do think it's important for groups who spend a lot of time at the Capitol 
to show, hey, we don't always have to go to the same person. Mm-hmm. You know, we, 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 we got all kind of cards out there and people that we work with. I think that's that's valuable and it shows strength. So to, to the to the fact to the point that you might be able to to spread it out, that makes you stronger because people have that working relationship with you and it builds trust and it builds confidence. We love getting in other committees too because yeah. sometimes it, you know, I want to say you get a little stale, right? But right. it's not, you know, when the sun goes to the house floor, right. like if they haven't met Chico, if right. they haven't heard, you know, uh, Ms. Ivy's testimony or whatever, right. then they're not going to really have that, that, exactly. that proximity, that experience. And so now we're relying upon the Royce Duplessis's, Duplessis perhaps, if there's that. The Duplessis. <laughs> Duplessis. <laughs> to, to really like pitch and champion for us on the floor, right? But right. Um, so it was, it was a little bummer to know that our, our three medical bills, you know, we couldn't get them into health and welfare. Yeah, that's what they should have um, been. But we had a, such a great uh, presentation. Uh, Mandy yeah. was uh, referencing it on the on the other segment uh, when we, you know, we did a report as part of her resolution and we, we had the whole uh, health and welfare engaged. They were asking questions, right. they, you know, in a way that you wish the ACJ, the Criminal Justice Committee, was was as engaged. Right. Um, because here we are literally trying to solve a complex problem. Yeah. And, and to that point, I need to do a follow up with the chair uh, of the committee because that, that bill really should be in health and welfare. It's um, even if we end up dual referring it, you mm-hmm. know, I think it may be worth trying to get it in there one more time. Yeah, yeah. that's what's up. Well, yeah. you know, um, you know, Royce Duplessis, and you're really thankful to to have you in here, getting some of your extra time. I know that you know, day off from the legislature can be full of a ton of things, and I'm sure you got personal things to deal with too. And um, but you know, any parting words for our folks out there? Look, just uh, just keep pushing. We, you know, we are um, up against some big challenges, but I think we all know that. And what I try to do through it all, we just went through some challenging, diff- uh, challenging uh, fights with redistricting. Mm-hmm. And what we can't do is become discouraged. Mm-hmm. We just, we just can't. So my message always to everybody is just to, just to be encouraged. And I'm not saying it in some Pollyannic way that things are perfect. Things are very challenging. And I, I have to be, I have to confront myself at times to make sure I don't get discouraged or lean on others to try to, you know, keep each other lifted. We just have to keep going. And even if we're making slow progress, as long as we're making progress, sometimes it may feel like a setback, but eventually it's going to crack. The door's going to crack. I'll never forget, you know, the day Pat Smith's bill mm. uh, passed, you know, uh, restoring voter rights. And I had just gotten to the legislature, but I know she had been working on that bill for years, you know, so that's just what it takes. And we have to be in it for that. So I would just say, let's all just, um, you know, keep keep pushing, you know, even when we're gone, you know, justice will will carry forward. The good doctor says the arc of humanity is long and it bends towards justice. justice. That's right. And for those that don't know, Pat, the Terminator Smith, uh, you know, every time that they sent her away, she always said, I'll be back. I'll be back. That's and, right. And uh, you know, so so I, I'm really grateful for you coming through. We're I'm see you up grateful for the invitation. See you around town. Honored, and, uh, honored to be invited. Let's and go, Pels. Let's go. Shout out to Mike, and we out. Till Thanks, the next Mike. Episode. We need each other. Wake up, everybody.